Blaze Radio Network. And now, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Greetings, happy warriors, and welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And I remain equally and as solemnly dedicated to reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that is never going to change is that uh, at the time of my preparing this podcast, Jews are lighting Hanukkah candles for eight successive nights. And so, for instance, um, the fourth, the, 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 the fourth candle is going to be lit on Sunday night. And uh, when I say the fourth candle, I mean four candles will be lit on Sunday night, December the 10th. And I'm speaking about the year 2023, uh, for those of you who may be listening to this a year or two or more late. But uh, at any rate, for people currently listening to the show, uh, Sunday night, the 10th of December, Jews will go ahead and light four candles in their windows. And uh, yes, they are meant to be visible. And on Monday night, December 11th, they'll light five candles. On Tuesday night, December the 12th, six candles. On Wednesday night, December 13th, seven candles. And finally, the culmination of the holiday will be Thursday night, December the 14th, when uh, eight for candles will be lit and uh, and by the way if uh, any of you would would like to be doing that uh, <laughs> you don't have to be jewish uh, there is something rather wonderful about enlightening the world and by making this truly a season of light and it doesn't have to be in any formal kind of menorah it doesn't have to be any specific kind of candles uh, it can it, it should be four um four candles or five candles or six four four on sunday night and it can be tea lights or regular candles or or, or it can even be oil lamps it doesn't matter at all but uh, the idea is uh, that it should be not uh, directly electric, although in times of, of duressa, for instance, um, a, uh, a person just recently contacted me uh, about a sibling who is in hospital during the Hanukkah period uh, for reasons that are obvious in the sense that uh, we have uh, oxygen around. They don't let naked flames in many hospital rooms, or some do. And uh, he asked whether his sibling can light, go ahead and light um, with an electric 
menorah. And, and yes, in situations of duress, it can. Why? Because the fact is that in addition to the holiday commemorating the, um, the, the triumph of the Maccabees against the Greek tyranny 2,187 years ago, and think about it. I mean, Jews have been lighting Hanukkah lights every single year since then, 2,187 years ago. Um, there are heart-rending accounts of uh, Jews lighting Hanukkah candles that they made uh, in unbelievably ingenious ways uh, in Auschwitz during Hanukkah. Um, it's, uh, it's always been a, a symbol of resisting tyranny, but it's also a symbol of something else. And uh, you won't hear much about this aspect of Hanukkah very often, but uh, there it is in, in learned circles, it's understood and known. And that is that it also is a celebration of what I call GG energy, God-given energy. Um, it is the energy that uh, the other side of this bipolar world calls fossil fuels, right? FF energy. Uh, so you either go with the GG model or the FF model. What is one of the huge differences? Well, one of the very big and important differences between a God-given energy model as opposed to a, um, uh, a FF model is um, is the very simple basic idea that in the FF model we are running out of fuel. That's that's an important aspect of that model. Um, so now just bear in mind that the uh, account in ancient Jewish wisdom is that the uh, the uh, Greek tyranny. Uh, violated the, the temple and desacramentalized the oil and uh, the need to light the candelabra every day in the temple was uh, hard to accomplish without the oil and they found one tiny little jar of oil that was enough for one day that hadn't been violated and um, and it, it took a certain amount of time to produce new oil from the olive groves and uh, they went ahead and lit it anyway, and it just kept on burning for eight days. And so there was this idea of, um, of you know, not running out of oil, basically. And again, because of political correctness, you don't hear this spoken about a whole, um, a whole lot. But uh, if, if you can approach it with just a completely open mind and a fresh vision, um, you, you, you can't possibly ignore the fact that We've been talking about running out of oil for a very long time. Uh, one of the earliest cases I could find was a very influential British economist called William Stanley Jevons. I think his brother-in-law was a lord or, or, or a member of parliament. He was very, very well connected and virtually every word he uttered was iconized by British society. And... Um, 
He wrote a book in 1865 called The Coal Question, an inquiry concerning the progress of the nation and the probable exhaustion of our coal mines. And uh, what he was suggesting was that Britain dial back their industrial activity so as to make the oil last a little longer than uh, it was otherwise likely to do. They were going to run out of, not oil, coal. Uh, Britain was going to run out of coal. And uh, there it is. That's, that is the persistent drumbeat of the fossil fuel movement. We're, we're running out of oil. And I don't have to tell you that uh, Britain could still operate entirely on oil if they hadn't switched. Excuse me, I keep saying oil. I mean, gas, uh, coal. Britain could, they're still able to mine coal. There's plenty of coal left. They never dialed back on industry. What they did do is they eventually switched from oil to from coal to oil and from oil to natural gas and they're using all those examples of that's right fossil fuels exactly and and that is something that uh, is not clearly understood at all so why why are fossil fuels so persistently tied to the idea of running out of oil? Well, partially because the FF vision is closely tied to the idea of shortage, whereas the GG vision, the God-given fuel idea, is closely linked to the idea of abundance. But back to the fossil fuel story. 1865, and William Stanley Jevons assures us that Britain is on the brink of running out of coal. But listen to the United States Bureau of Mines. Now, this is the United States government, and you think they could hire the most reliable predictors and they could employ the most knowledgeable scientists. In the year 1914, I found a uh, proclamation from the United States Bureau of Mines. The world will run out of oil in 10 years. That would be 1924. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, in less than 20 years after that, uh, World War II was being fought over and on oil. Um, how about the United States Department of the Interior, another governmental department? They issued a statement in 1939. The world rolled out of oil in 13 years. Now, that was already uh, 25 years after the United States government said the world will run out of oil in 10 years' time. So um, then they did that again in 1950. Again, a statement from the United States Department of the Interior, the world will run out of oil in 13 years. Paul Ehrlich, distinguished professor at Stanford University, uh, in 1973, he wrote that the world will run, a, run out of oil and other fossil fuels by 1990. So by 1973, they were already using the term fossil fuels. And in 1973, he writes and is widely accepted, the world will run out of oil and other fossil fuels by 1990. Uh, Paul Ehrlich again, when Apparently, we hadn't run out of oil in 1990, and by the way, by 1990, we were actually extracting more oil per year than we had been doing in 1973. Um, the 
Paul Ehrlich came back again. Remember, in 73, he predicted no more oil or coal or gas by 1990. Well, in 2002, so that's 12 years after the expiration of his last deadline, he then said uh, the world will run out of oil in 2030 and other fossil fuels in 2050. So he's being a lot more cautious now, but it's one a prediction after another. It's almost as if they want to see the world running out of oil. Well, in a certain sense, of course they do, because uh, if you've been predicting that uh, the the boat will sink, um, if you take to the lifeboats in confidence that the ship is going to sink and then you watch the ship sail happily onwards of course you're miserable and of course you have to say well you just wait it's going to sink you just keep watching and then it reaches the horizon and it's about to sink over the horizon but not sink into the water and you say see it's sinking it's sinking that is kind of the uh, the picture of what i feel i'm watching as i look at all of these insane predictions because part of the fossil fuel vision is yes of course we're running out but part of the god-given vision is that there's abundance and there is the uh, part of the message of hanukkah that yes we're going to burn light one candle uh, one night two candles the next and on by the time we get to sunday night we'll light four and monday night five and sunday and tuesday at six there's no shortage just keep on lighting it's fine go ahead and these are clearly two different incompatible views of reality, right? Um, it, it can't be both ways. You've got to make up your minds. And uh, just remember, you heard it here first on the Rabbi Daniel Appen show. When you eventually discover that, shocking, amazingly enough, oil is not the decaying Vegeted vegetation products of millions of years ago, but instead, um, somehow or another, it is created uh, geologically through some process going on inside the rocks. By the way, I'm not the only person who who thinks that that is a reality, um, and it, it you know it's not a it's not a scientific prediction. I you you can't you can't tell that and talking about science i'll come back to that in just a moment but initially let me um, remind you that now would be a wonderful time to go ahead and subscribe to this show go ahead and do that um, subscribe add to our subscription numbers as they continue to climb and uh, you be a part of that as a happy warrior i would appreciate that very much so please go ahead and do that and um also, while you are at it, in order to gain a fuller understanding, no, not of fossil fuels and God-given fuels and uh, not of um, the, uh, the, the geological process of oil creation, but no, a, a better understanding of how to make sure that the decisions you take in your life numerous times every day dozens of times every week, important decisions, some of them so important you don't even realize at the time you're making them, but to develop an intuitive ability to make the right ones, I want to recommend that you go ahead and um, get yourself a copy of 
The Holistic You. That is a book that uh, Susan Lappin and I wrote. Uh, it's called The Holistic You, Integrating Your Family, Finances, Faith, Friendships, and Fitness. The Holistic You. And um, the, uh, the book focuses, as the subtitle indicates, on uh, the five essential zones of everybody's life and it explains them and it explains how paradoxically in a in an unexpected way working on shall we say your fitness can help your finances how working on your uh, friendships can help your family how working on your finances can can help your faith and so on and so forth how all of these five essential subzones of life actually all integrate together uh, very very effectively and how you can benefit from managing your life in accordance with this extremely reliable blueprint and so that uh, basic Hanukkah message and um, uh, yes it's in addition to other also fundamental Hanukkah messages uh, defiance of tyranny uh, the idea of uh, the faith model of reality defeating the secular model of reality uh, because in ancient Jewish wisdom, there is a constant tension between Jerusalem and Athens. And the two cities exemplify the two worldviews. Uh, completely incompatible. You can't have them both. You've got to decide how you are going to live your life. And you can say, I'm not all the way on one or I'm not all the way on the other. I tend towards this direction. Or you might say I'm undecided. But somehow or another, the people I admire, the people I like, the people who I think are making a more successful job of their lives, well, they tend towards this way or the other. What are the two ways? The Jerusalem way is God-centric. The Athens way is, uh, is completely secular. The fossil fuel vision of reality ties to the Athens vision, the secular vision of reality. And part and parcel of that vision of reality is shortage. Okay, not surprisingly, uh, societies that have been operated on a secular tyrannical model, otherwise known as communism, or if you want me to be polite, socialism, or if you want me to be really, really polite, progressivism uh, or wokeism. But societies that have been operated on that basis have uh, never succeeded in building effective economies. Why? Well, partially because tied in to the secular fossil fuel vision of reality is also the idea of shortage. That is part and possible. It is one of the fundamental doctrines of the religion of secularism, if you if you understand my meaning, a fundamental doctrine is shortage, and so recycling becomes a sacred sacrament of that particular worldview. On the other side, you've got the Jerusalem worldview, which is one of a God-centric world, and part and parcel of that one is abundance. And so, you know, you might say to yourself, well, you know, I'm not really sure that uh, th that there is really a God, and I, I, I don't know about that. And people seem pretty settled about uh, 
an evolutionary uh, model of creation and how things came to be. Uh, so I, d I don't really know. But I must admit that people that I like, people who seem to have successful families and people who are making a living and doing well, I, many of those people seem to have a faith dimension in their life. And so I sort of tend to incline that way. But the jury is still out. I'm basically agnostic on the topic. Right. That, that's a position many people legitimately take. Uh, and then there are other people who are ardently and strenuously uh, for the, um, the, the secular model of reality. And uh, yes, these are two conflicting and incompatible visions, Jerusalem and Athens. And uh, yes, they are two conflicting belief systems. And when I say belief systems, um, well, let me, let me put it this way. Uh, they're in, in, in the minds of people and in the United States of America, uh, it is close to a, um, a uh, an even division. Um, about 40% of Americans at the present time believe, and I say believe, right? It's Nobody's proving anything. But about 40% of Americans believe, as I do, that we are on this planet because the good Lord created us in his image and put us here. And about 40% of Americans tend to believe that we're on this planet because through a process, a very lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into plumbers and proctologists. Uh, and about 20% of Americans have an extremely firm and deep-seated conviction on either of those. No, it's 10% one way, 10% the other way. But, but yeah, about half of Americans tend towards the Jerusalem worldview, and about half tend towards an Athens worldview. And uh, belief it is, there was a very influential um, and, uh, and very funny sitcom on uh, television from the, the late 90s. I think it ran from about 95 to 2005, approximately thereabouts. It was called Friends. And I've, I've often alluded to it uh, because it did have an enormous impact on American culture and possibly elsewhere in the world as well. Uh, it had a very strong impact. And it, it spoke about six friends who shared life together on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Uh, there were three guys and three girls, and um, and they were friends. And and I've, I've, I've alluded to aspects of the show in the past. Uh, it was very cleverly written. No question about it. Very, very cleverly written. And, you know, some episodes were better than others. And I'm not an expert on the show by any means. But, but uh, while acknowledging that it damaged the culture, uh, I, uh, I myself know of um, uh, a couple of young women and young men who, who really did uh, decide to sort of shape their lives on on the values they imported from the show called Friends. Now, um, in in one of them, one of the girls who's the sort of sweet, kind-hearted, slightly ditzy girl, and her name is Phoebe, and uh, one of the other ones is a guy called Ross, 
and um, he works as a paleontologist. He is a scientist. He works for the uh, Museum of uh, Natural History, and I think he then becomes a professor of paleontology. Anyway, it's um, uh, here. Here is just a few words of an interchange about evolution, such as like crop circles or the Bermuda Triangle or evolution. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't uh, you don't believe in evolution? No, not really. <laughs> you don't believe in evolution? I don't know. It's just you know, monkeys, Darwin. You know, it's a, it's a nice story. I just think it's a little too easy. <laughs> too easy? Too. <laughs> The process of every living thing on this planet evolving over millions of years from single-celled organisms is, is too easy? Yeah, I just don't buy it. Uh, excuse me. Evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is scientific fact, like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. Oh, okay, don't get me started on gravity. Well, you you, you you get the idea, right? <laughs> uh, it, it, it hits on hot topics, and uh, and it, it dealt with that one effectively. But one of the things it did show was that the you know all rational, normal people are supposed to side not with a ditzy blonde, but with scientist Ross, and he is incredibly offended that she doesn't believe in evolution. That's right. Um, so these things do really go together. In other words, um, almost, you know, if, if you believe in, ev in evolution, well, then you're likely also to tend towards believing in uh, running out of fossil fuels. And um, back in the day of William Stanley Jevons, you know, he recommended slowing down industry, cutting back England's productivity and development uh, in the interests of saving coal, of making it last longer. Well, as time went by, uh, that particular rationale um, didn't work so well because people said, uh, look, don't, don't make us worry about uh, running out of coal. Make us worry about running out of oil and you're wanting us to cut back now. It's not necessary. We'll solve that problem down the road. And, and of course, they were right. But um, what they really didn't want to do was to be handicapped by fears of running out of fossil fuels. And so that side, the members of that church, the people, the devotees of that religion had to come up with something else. And given credit, they came up with something really clever. They came up with the cult of climate, the idea that burning fossil fuels is destroying the planet. So if we couldn't get you to be worried about running out of coal and running out of oil, perhaps we can get you worried about destruction of the planet. If you live near a coastal city, you'd better learn to tread water because the ocean levels are rising. You know why? Because we're burning coal and we're burning oil. That's right. The cult of climate is created in order to sustain the secular religion of fossil fuels, running out of fossil fuels. And so um, this is an ongoing problem, obviously. And, and sure enough, it is as you look at it, 
clearly a competition between two religious visions, or if you don't like the word religion, two belief systems. All right, the belief system of scientism, which proves and shows that we're running out of fuel and uh, a, uh, a God-given fuel vision, which says, no, we're not. And it's interesting that um, there really are only two infallible things. Uh, people believe that science is infallible. People believe God is infallible. It's, it's one of the two. Either science is infallible or God is infallible. And about half people believe that God is infallible. And about half people believe science is infallible. So there it is. You've, you've kind of got to decide. And it's interesting that uh, it always comes back to the basic question of uh, how did human beings arrive on this planet? And it's something that uh, seems to be basic to all of us human beings to sort of want to ask that question. And as far back as you want to go in recorded history, people have been asking that question. Um, I was interested to discover that um, every culture that has been studied and deeply studied by wonderful anthropologists like uh, uh, Stanley, by, by Daniel Unwin, uh, or charlatan anthropologists like Margaret Mead, uh, but all of them investigate and show that all cultures seem to have some kind of uh, what they call origin myth, some kind of legend, some kind of account, some kind of story that explains how it all began, where we come from. Um, the uh, uh, American Indians have theirs and different tribes have different ones that uh, that vary from one another in 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 detail or to a greater extent and uh, wherever you go hinduism has an origin story buddhism has an origin story um, uh, many african tribes have different kinds of origin stories uh, islam has an origin story that is similar to but in no way identical, differing in very important details from the biblical one. And Jews and Christians have an origin story based on the book of Genesis in the Bible. And uh, to me, what's interesting is how so many different, seemingly different and apparently disconnected characteristics all seem to, in general, align with one or the other of these two alternative worldviews. So, in other words, when you decide which belief system to follow, uh, whether you decide to follow the infallible God of scientism, and when I say, when I say that with, with some irony in my voice, um, that would be because we have to understand things that are scientific and things that are not scientific. And um, being a scientist doesn't confer infallibility upon you in all areas. So, for instance, if a geologist makes the statement that, uh, according to science, the ideal spacing for children is three years between each child, um, you know, you can listen to him or not listen to him, but to say that that is scientifically proven is complete nonsense. 
Um, and so in, in the same way, if, um, well, let me say, the thing about science is it has to be reproducible and it's got to be falsifiable. In other words, you've got to be able to, if you state something scientifically and say, I have proven it, then other people have got to be able to follow your proof and be able to do it as well. And for this reason, one scientific belief system or one, I shouldn't say that, one scientific um, conclusion after another has been invalidated by further research and by further progress. This is always the way of science. But when people say, you know, uh, six out of 10 scientists believe in global warming, uh, it doesn't mean anything. And, you know, it's obvious why it doesn't. And if, if it isn't obvious, you can research it and you'll see for yourself. It's equivalent, as I say, uh, to an electrical engineer um, saying that um, uh, people, people should, uh, it's been scientifically proven that people who live together before marriage have more successful, durable marriages. By the way, actually, uh, the opposite happens to be true to whatever extent you can say scientifically, but to whatever extent you want to rely on surveys and studies and analyses and data and statistics, it's actually the opposite. But bottom line is, it, it science is something that can be reproducible. And when Ross told Phoebe, evolution is a scientific fact, um, no, it isn't actually. It's it is the only explanation for how we got to this planet, provided you exclude a God vision, a God-centric vision. If you are completely open, if you genuinely have an intellectually open mind, then um, it's not the only way. But the idea that it is scientific is simply not true. Science means you can prove it. No, it cannot be proven. It can be shown to be a possible explanation in the absence of God. That's the best you can say for it in exactly the same way that uh, there's no way to prove the God view. All you can do is go through life, keep your eyes open and arrive at which is the most likely to give you a better life. Which belief is most likely to give you a better life? That's what you really have to ask yourself. And uh, that's what people do. Free world, free country, free belief system. Everybody can do what they like. But uh, we do have to recognize that uh, the two infallible gods in the world are God and scientism. Uh, I don't say science because... Uh, um, science is, um, is is a tool and a very effective tool. But like any time you misuse a tool, like putting a, a, a walnut on a glass table and then using a sledgehammer to crack the walnut, when you use the wrong tool for the job, the results are, shall we say, not pretty. And, uh, and so that is true as well. If one uses religion to decide how to wire one's home, or when you, or we, or we use uh, religion to to try and uh, uh, determine the safety factors needed for the containment of radioactivity in a wonderful nuclear power station. That's a wrong use, 
clearly that's in exactly the same as the other way around wrong usage and um, and that is the uh, these these are some of the things that i've been thinking about as hanukkah arrives and uh, and i realized that yes the 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 basic lessons of hanukkah that uh, you know everybody every jewish person who goes to hebrew school as a kid learns and heard about and uh, oh you know some people are drawn to the attractive feature of this was a military victory of the Maccabees against the vastly superior Greek army. This shows the effectiveness of guerrilla warfare. And, uh, you know, okay, that that's one lesson that came out of Hanukkah's story and the events of Hanukkah 2,187 years ago. Um, for other people, it is, and, and this is a central part, the triumph of faith this is the triumph over a God-centric view of reality over the uh, the Athenian um, secular vision of reality. And, and all of these things are, are true, as is the oil message of Hanukkah, lighting a, an additional oil-burning device each successive night of the eight-day festival of Hanukkah to signify, yes, we can use more oil next year than we used last year. We can use more fuel. Uh, that's that's just fine. And uh, yes, it is in fact very easy to show the huge, dramatic increase in human welfare since the world started using energy sources that are really effective, like coal and then subsequently oil. Uh, the, if you actually plot the, the decline of poverty and real poverty, not reduced to you know, how many dollars a day the average person earns, but reduced to you know, the, the number of people who worry about their next meal or where they're going to sleep tonight, uh, that figure took a dramatic turn for the better as the world moved into oil and uh, it's it's not a mistake it's not an accident it's not uh, it's not a coincidence that um, the governor of the state of michigan just recently uh, did some legis uh, passed some legis or put put out a bill that i believe has passed um, committing michigan to um, zero fossil fuel usage by a very early date and the, it, there's no question that this is going to cause huge economic hardship to Michiganders, as people who live in Michigan are called. Um, and at a certain point, people will begin to notice that. In California right now, people are paying typically double, double on their energy bills than they need to because of the um, insistence of Governor Newsom and successive Californian governments uh, to not only believe in the fossil fuel vision of reality, but to act very aggressively on it. There are real costs associated with that view. Poverty and shortage is associated with a uh, secular godless view of reality and abundance and prosperity is more associated with a God-centric view of reality. At any rate, I will leave you now to go and get ready to light my Hanukkah candles. 
And uh, I wish you all a, uh, a very joyous festival of light, season of light, a Merry Christmas for those of you celebrating Christmas and a joyful Hanukkah for those of you celebrating Hanukkah and for everybody lighting candles, bringing more light into the world and uh, developing and promoting and advocating for a, a wise view of reality, one that really shows how the world really works. And so until next time, uh, your rabbi, uh, hoping that your world moves upwards and onwards better and better as you integrate your family, your finances, your faith, your friendships, and your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.